So we still in this country have a great deal to be thankful for, and I hope that we are thankful. And I thank you for your love and loyalty. And as my life comes to an end, as I'm getting older, well, I deeply appreciate that more than ever, as I see how people are really tied in with the way of God. And I hope all of us can deeply pray that God will add thousands and later tens of thousands to our number because we will have an opportunity to help them be in the first resurrection and we can prepare more people to be those kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God, to have the mind of God and be able to teach the world the right way of life. And that's a very exciting thing. We have that opportunity and we here in the headquarters church have it in a very special way. So thank you all, and thank you, brethren in Britain and Australia and South Africa, Canada, all over, as well as you brethren here, and we do appreciate it. Brethren, and young people especially, billions of years ago, Almighty God and the Logos, the spokesman as he was called, decided to plan out a great master plan, and they decided to reproduce themselves and to create other beings that they could share eternity with, like a happily married, normally married, young married couple who love each other, they wanted to reproduce. They wanted to have other people, other beings with whom they could share their life, their plans, their love. And they wanted us. That's the reason we're here. They didn't create us because they didn't want us. They created us because they did want us to be part of their family. And they had an entire plan in the way they would do that. And somewhere along the line, we know that Satan the devil and one-third of the angelic hosts under the influence of Lucifer rebelled against God. They had a lot of power. They had a lot of intelligence. They had a lot of beauty, as the Bible makes very clear in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describes them. But they didn't have character. They rebelled against God. So God didn't want to reproduce robots. He created human beings in his own image and he gave us the power of free moral agency. Free moral agency. We can choose to go the right way or we can choose to go the wrong way. And now as the end of this age approaches and we're beginning to see more people around the world in Africa and parts of the Middle East and parts of Asia suffering horribly and these dictators and maniacs, some of them, running around killing, raping, torturing, beating up, burning people alive people are beginning to realize that things are happening and other nations are going to finally wake up and understand that there is something going on that hasn't been going on. And it's a time to think about what life is all about and if there is a real God, we'd better get on his side. We had better let him know where we stand and we should do that. So I hope all of us can understand that and really want to be with God and with the creator of the heavens and the earth. So God made us in his image, and he wants us to be like he is eventually, but he's going to have to test us first, and he wants to know where we stand. He cannot and will not create a whole bunch of more potential Satans. That's not part of his plan, and that is not going to happen. He's not going to let that happen. At the very beginning of the book of John, turn with me, if you would, to the gospel. The gospel of John, chapter 1, and let's begin in verse 1. As Mr. Armstrong said, the real beginning... It's not back in Genesis 1. This goes way back before that. Genesis 1 talks about this earth and human beings. This goes way back before that. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning. doesn't say 6,000 years ago. It probably was billions of, or trillions of years ago. 
God is spirit, and we you know He doesn't think in terms of how many times the earth rotates and the rot or, or rotates around the sun or the moon and doesn't use the timetable in the way we do. But it was way, way back beyond what our human mind could imagine, no doubt. In the beginning was the word. The Greek word here, spelled word, is L-O-G-O-S, logos. It means the spokesman, the revelatory principle, the one who is able to speak for God. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Most of you, brethren, know that person was Christ. The one who became Jesus Christ was with the Father from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Think about it. All things were made through Christ who died for your sins. The one who made the sun, the moon, the stars, the one who created beautiful sunsets, the gentle breeze going through the trees at night, the beautiful chirping of the birds in the mornings, the sun rises up, the glorious mountains that so many of us used to love to climb, vast mountain scenery, the love of a man and a woman, the love of a mother and her baby, Every good and every perfect gift came from God. It came from Christ, who Christ is God. He created all that. He wants us to enjoy all that. He wants to use all of that, to, to use it, of course, in the right way. All things were made through Christ, through him, the Logos. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, the right way to live, the glorious way to live, to have a full life without all kinds of repercussions later. And the life is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. When Christ came among the Jews back at that time, or any human beings, let's not blame it all on the Jews, the others were there too, other nationalities walking around in that great city. They didn't get it. They were not called, of course, most of them, and they did not understand that their very creator that gave them life and breath was walking around who had emptied himself and was a human being among them for 33 and a half years. It says in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. He was the creator and the world did not know him. He was came to his own, his Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, willing to accept the God who gave his life for them, to them he gave the right to become. We're not born again fully in this age. We're begotten of God. We have his Holy Spirit. We're not yet full sons of God until we're resurrected. Then we're made God by that process. He received as to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born or begotten, not of blood, or not just, uh, not just of our physical blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was right here. Many of you have gone to Israel. I know that my son and his family directed the whole Israel tour last year and the year before. And hundreds of people have been there with our church even in the last couple of years or so, walking the Sea of Galilee, walking up and down the various places where Jesus walked. So he was right among us and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the begotten, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. At that time, he was the only begotten. The church had not yet started. The day of Pentecost had not yet come. The Holy Spirit was not yet given. So he was the only begotten of God the Father at that particular time. He had been already God, but he emptied himself of that power. 
So then we turn back to Genesis chapter 1, and here's the later beginning and what happened in a little more detail. Genesis chapter 1, it describes how God created the heavens and the earth. Then he created each animal, each bird, each creature after his kind. But then you turn to Genesis 1 and beginning in verse 26. Then God said, and it's in the plural form, Elohim said, more than one, let us, God and the Logos, that being, the spokesman who became Jesus Christ, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. So from the beginning, man was made to have dominion. In the beginning, mankind, man and woman, were made like God. We alone of all creatures have creative imagination. We can bring into being things that have never been before. The dolphins and the chimpanzees, supposedly with the greatest animal intelligence, they can't do that. They don't create little wagons and later automobiles and later, of course, space vehicles to explore Mars. They can't even begin to start to commence to do any of that. Only human beings in God's image who have the kind of mind that you have. And we need to use our mind. And we need to recognize we have a few years on this life and we had better make the right choices. If there's a God, we'd better find that out and we better do what he says and do it with our whole being and not do it half-heartedly. God says throughout the Bible in various ways, whatever you do, do it with your might. Don't be a halfway Christian, be a complete Christian. So God then gave man and woman dominion and we have dominion over all the physical creation, of course. And that is why God put us here to learn lessons to become members of his family later. Then in chapter 2, it describes, or chapter 3, I mean, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast. And here comes a snake deceiving Adam and Eve. And the, God had already created the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were told not to eat it. And he said... In the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, going good and evil. But then verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, desirable, or pleasant to the eyes, desirable, it was a temptation to her, something very pretty, desirable to make one wise. She took of this fruit and gave it to her husband. He loved her, and that's fine, but he should have been the leader. He said, no, honey, not now. Let's wait until God shows us to do this. But he did not do that. He did not take the lead. And she went ahead and led him to sin. And so they all then brought, they brought all mankind under the penalty of death. Because the wages of sin, the reward for sin is death. It tells us in Romans 6.23. In that day you take this, dying you will die. It says not that they would die right that second, but dying you will die. And that's how the Hebrew is worded here. And so they came under the curse. And, of course, God cursed them with toil and dust you, sh shall, you are, and to dust you shall return, he said in chapter 3 and verse 19. So they were then under the curse of God because they had sinned who and how? They had sinned directly against God. They actually walked and talked with God in the person of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Eden. He said, you don't do this. And it seems so appealing. Well, we'd like to try this. We'd like to have free sex. We'd like to have liquor. We'd like to see how, what it feels to get out, zoned out on drugs. We'd like to do this and we'd like to do that. But they went directly against the creator. They weren't in doubt that there was someone like that. They saw him. 
and so they brought all human beings under the death penalty, and so they were cut off. So they felt very guilty, and of course they were hiding themselves and, and putting on, in verse 7 here of chapter 3, they put on fig leaves uh, for them covering, and then later God told them, who knew, how did you know you were naked? Who told them this? They didn't have to have any, any shame about being naked as they were a man and wife, but they began to feel guilty because they had done wrong. And so they were banished then by God from the Garden of Eden. And then it says in verse uh, 21 here, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Well, that probably involved killing an animal. It doesn't say he killed them then, but he could have made the tunics directly, but it probably involved the shedding of blood even here. But in chapter 4, it shows how Adam and Eve had a child and then another boy and then Abel, their second son, verse 4, came along and offered the offering that God had obviously directed. He offered his blood sacrifice, an animal, and God respected his offering. But he did not respect Cain's offering. Cain came with a different kind of offering. He says, well, what's special about Saturday? I don't need to keep the Sabbath. I'll just keep Sunday instead. He tried to worship God his way. He used his human reason rather than be having the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God, the awe of God, is the beginning of understanding. It's stated in all three of those ways in the book of Proverbs, as many of you know. Having that awe that there is a great creator who gives you life and breath, and you really need to do things God's way and not try to water things down. So at that point then, it, God then respected Abel's offering because it obviously was a blood sacrifice, and God showed that he was respecting that kind of sacrifice, not the sec secondary type that uh, Adam, I mean that Abel, had, that Cain had offered. Now we go to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, if you're New Testament. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, brethren. I could read all this passage, but and I hope that you will as you look into this situation. But the main thing is to get the primary point here. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 18, it describes this one key thing that is mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews and Genesis and elsewhere, in Genesis, I mean in Hebrews 9, he says, therefore, verse 18, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Brethren, God shows in his word that sin is awful. I mean, you don't think about it as a young person. I know I didn't think about it. As I was in high school, we had this jaunty, carnal attitude, and I was in the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC they called it. I remember coming home after school one year, one day, or maybe it was two or three times, actually, we had to walk right by Seventh-day Adventist Church. And there weren't very many Seventh-day Adventists back there in their church. It was kind of a little small room with a window halfway above the, the uh, ground. The other half was one of these buildings where you had kind of a half basement, a little window going in, and it said something about Seventh-day Adventists. And some of the guys would say, ha, 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 they keep Saturday. And we all said, ha, ha, and we walked on. 
We didn't know what we were talking about. We weren't mad at them. We were just trying to join in the fun. But we were carnal. We were sassy. We did not have a genuine fear. What does this really mean? Why are people doing this? I remember when I was working up in the Anderson Ranch Dam, this government dam project up in Idaho, out in the mountains of Idaho, while we were going along with some young men down to uh, Mormon headquarters there in, in Salt Lake City, and up in Idaho, these young Mormon men were deacons, they said, and they were probably too young to be deacons as we would look at it, but they were 19 or 21, or not about my age, probably 19, but they were deacons, and they were supposed to be very dedicated, but they were smoking and drinking. But when they got down in Salt Lake, they took me down there on the 4th of July weekend. Then they were very careful, and they didn't drink and smoke. And then we got back to Salt, up, up in the mountains to Anderson Ranch Dam, and I asked them, how come you're drinking and smoking up here, but you didn't down there? And they said, well, we're sort of on vacation. I thought to myself, because I was beginning to seek God at that point in my life, what? You're on vacation from God? You're not on vacation from God anytime. You or me. The eyes of the eternal are everywhere, beholding the good and the evil. And God wants us with our heart, where we really mean it, to be willing to do what he says and have a deep sense that our creator has programmed a way of life and he wants us to walk in it. He wants us to give our lives to him. He wants to live his life within us. But other people I was up with up there, I've told you this story before, but a young Catholic man, he wasn't young, he was older than me, he and his couple friends had been in the Marines in the Second World War, no, in the Korean War. And uh, they, he gave me all of his money, he just showed it opened up, and he gave half of all his money on Saturday night, and then he would go into, we'd go into Boise that, any week we had, we were going into Boise, which is a little bigger town, and, and, and of course the capital of Idaho, and I asked him later, he kept half and he gave me half and he'd get that half back later and then he'd turn it in the next day. I said, what's wrong? He said, well, I'm spending this half on the way I want to. We found him and his friends in these uh, speaky places with bar girls and so on on Saturday night if we were walking around. I wasn't even drinking back in those days, so we weren't doing anything evil, but we were just checking places out and we found them there a couple times. We knew what they were up to. So he'd spend his money on wine, women, and song Saturday night, and then Sunday morning he'd get it back for me. He and I had religious arguments because he was a Catholic, but he sensed that I was sincere. He trusted me with his money even though we had religious arguments and so on. So I'd give it back and I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I spend half of my money, you know, on, on fun, and then the next day I give the other half to the priest. I said, in other words, the priest takes care of things with God. He said, that's it. I begin to think, where, you know, should I go to Ambassador College or not? I thought, you know, I'd better go down and find I found my Protestant friends and Catholic friends and Mormon friends. God was not real to them. They did not have a profound understanding of God. They did not have any real understanding of God at all. They did not have the fear of God. So that is one of many, many reasons I decided to come out to Ambassador College in 1949 and learn the purpose of human existence, to learn about the true Christ, the true Christ of the Bible, and the true God, and the true meaning of religion. But anyway, back here in uh, 
Hebrews 9 and verse 18, it shows even the first covenant, the old covenant, was not dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept according to the law, he took the blood of calves, goats, water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled the book with it, and said to the people, This is the blood of the covenant which was commanded you. And so what does this mean? Sin brings death. And God forgives sin only by the shedding of blood. Because sin is horrible, and God has wanted to impress us as he wanted to impress ancient Israel that sin is horrible, it's awful, it brings death. It's only expiated, it's only paid for by the shedding of blood. But perhaps one man's blood could pay for another man's sin, but who could pay for the sins of all of us? I think you know the answer. The one who created all of us. The Logos, the spokesman who became Jesus Christ. So this blood had great meaning as you look at the Old Testament sacrifices and these passages in the book of Hebrew. You turn back here to Genesis 22. Let's go back to Genesis again, brethren. And this time turn to Genesis uh, chapter 22. And in one of the most inspiring places in the Bible when you really understand it. It sounds bad on the surface, but underneath it gives tremendous meaning. Why was Abraham the father of the faithful? Because he feared God, he loved God, he worshipped God, he adored God, he obeyed God right down to the last jot and tittle. So it says here in Genesis chapter 22, after these things, the eternal tested Abraham. He put him to the supreme test of his life. And he said to him, Abraham, he said, take now your son, your only son, his only legitimate son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains. Abraham was used to that. He knew what that meant. He had killed probably dozens or maybe hundreds of sheep. You get hold of them, you wrist up their head, you slit their throat, the blood comes gushing out. He could picture what this was going to be like. Killing his own son was hard to imagine that. But he had known that God. If God spoke to me, I mean, some voice came to me in the middle of the night, slay, you know, one of your sons or something. Would I immediately jump up and grab a knife and do that? No, I would not. That may sound awful. I would have to say, God, if that is you, you need to prove it to me. Abraham had already dealt with God for years. That same voice, that same personality, that same power told him to do that. He knew he was doing exactly what God said. So early the next morning, he'd say, well, God, i got to wait around and figure out how to get around this some way. No, he immediately started to do what God said, and he took his son out and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, verse 9, stretched out his hand and took the knife. The angel of the Lord, this was Jesus Christ, spoke to him, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the land or do anything to him, for now I know. Now God had no doubt. He was putting Abraham to the supreme test. Now I know that you fear God. You have a profound awe and profound respect for the God who gives you life and breath. Because this angel, the Anhalos, the spokesman, was the one who became Jesus Christ. Everything indicates that. And Abraham was the type of God the Father, as other scriptures indicate. And Isaac was the type of Jesus Christ who went ahead and let them kill him, let them draw his blood 
let them beat him up until he was unrecognizable. So he said, Now I know you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so he really promised him great blessings because of this. And uh, he, because then, of course, he was willing to commit this sacrifice. So in a sense, Abraham, you want to use this word, pre-enacted. He was acting out ahead of time to show he was willing to do what God did do. Because God did love this other personality. Even though they were spirit, they'd been sharing things, talking, planning. They had love. And here was this other being the only other one he had, like a man with his only wife that he lived with for hundreds of years or millions of years in this case, as spirit beings, shared everything, and he emptied himself of his glory, his power, and now he was just a helpless human being, and God had to walk him, watch him writhe in agony when they were beating on him with lashes, and then later when they jammed that spear in his side and the blood gushed out, and he said, it is finished. He knew what was going to happen, and Christ knew what was going to happen ahead of time. He knew what he was facing. He was willing to do that because God does want us in his family. He does want first, though, to know that we really want to be in his family. We're not going to find some way around it, some argument. We will be willing to do things his way with all of our hearts. We really mean it. So he tested Abraham that way, and he's going to test you, and he's going to test me. I'm getting older, but he's going to keep on testing me till the day I die. He's going to keep on testing you to the day you die, every one of you. And don't you young people dare think you've got the next 20 or 40 years to go before you make up your mind you don't know. I used to think that, but as you've heard me explain, all of a sudden in July 1958, my friend whom I'd spent thousands of hours with and traveled to Europe with and lived with three and a half months solid, Richard David Armstrong, was crushed to death at an automobile accident and died a few days later. He had lived up to the age of 29. So I quit feeling sorry for old people. I used to feel sorry for them. I thought, no, a young person can die. You can die on the way home or any other time. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to help you think. Be realistic. Do what God tells you to do and try to think through what you ought to do and what is real. This is real. There is a real God. He really teaches us these things that only the expiation of sins can be accomplished by shed blood. And the expiation or the forgiveness of all our sins can only come about by one who had given us all life, who has the greatness of all of our lives together, the one who made our lives in the first place, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So Abraham pre-enacted what God later did, in fact. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus, brethren. Let's go now to chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. <clears throat> it says here, Now the eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron, This month shall be beginning of the months. And he said, Speak to the children of Israel, on the tenth day of this first month, you know, that's in the spring, we know, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household, and if it's too small or too large, share it, let the neighbor share it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. So it had to be a perfect lamb in a physical sense, a male lamb of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. 
Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day. Then at, at sunset, at, at uh, dusk, they were to kill it at twilight, shed its blood. And that lamb, we know, pictured the coming Jesus Christ. And they shall take some of the blood. So the shedding of blood was again involved. The shedding of blood and put it on the two upper start posts and side posts where they were to eat it. And they shall eat the flesh of, on that night, roasted in leavened bread, and so on. He said in verse 10, you shall let none of them remain until morning. Some people think they left that very night. No, they did not. They were to let none of it. They were to remain in their place until the morning. Then he said in verse four, uh, 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 11, eat it quickly. It is the Lord's Passover. It didn't say it was the Jews' Passover. It was the Eternal's Passover. For I, the Logos, the spokesman who was God, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. Everyone was been killed. He spared the blood sacrifice from the Israelites, but the others had to suffer it. Against all the gods of the Egyptians, I will execute judgment. I am the eternal. Now the blood, notice verse 13, brethren. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That is where the word Passover comes. God passes over, forgives our sins if we are under the blood. But the only blood that could pay for all our sins is the blood of one who gave all of us life. And the rest of the Bible surely indicates that very clearly. I will pass over you when I strike Egypt. And so this day shall be kept as a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast throughout your generations by an everlasting ordinance. It never ends for God's people. We keep the feast of the, of the Passover. And then, of course, we have to also keep the next the days of unleavened bread. So the Passover involved the shedding of blood. Christ had to have his blood shed. The Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God, was Jesus Christ. He is the Passover Lamb. And then you turn, if you would, to, to Isaiah chapter 52. So remember, Israel, ancient Israel, pre-enacted the sacrifice of Christ here about 1,500 years before Christ came along. Here was about 3 million people going through this very thing, portraying what would happen to Christ on that very night, on that very day, the 14th of Nisan. So you turn to Isaiah now, if you would, and uh, oh, my markers are all going to fall apart here, but Isaiah chapter 52, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Here is another passage given to us about 700 years before Christ. 700 years ahead of time describing in detail what was to happen to the Son of God. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. He was beaten to a pulp, for his face was swollen and bloody. He did not look like a man. Yet, of course, it was to be done to him and prophesied here ahead of time. Chapter 53 goes right on. I like to read it all, but, you know, men divided all these chapters and verses and so on. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall come before him as a tender plant out of dry ground. 
It was a very dry ground in Israel at that time. They were cut off from God. They had very little strength, spiritually. He has no form or comeliness. Christ did not come as a great, big, handsome, Mr. America-type individual. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was a normal-looking, young, 30 to 33-year-old Jew. That's how he came. He is despised and rejected by men. Even though he was loving, he was kind, he talked to them, he helped them, he encouraged them, he healed them, he blessed them, he cast out demons from their sons, did all kinds of wonderful things. They let their false religious leaders stir themselves up against him and turned on him and hated him and beat him and then crucified him. He was God. You say, well, if Christ were here, he would do this and that. No, not unless he decided to call everybody. They would kill him again. You know that if he came in this United States. Some of these major news media would come on him and make fun of him. And eventually they'd stir up people to kill him. They would be the same thing. Because he would look just like a man and they think they, could, they didn't like him coming along and them they were sinners. They had to repent and keep the Sabbath. They had to repent and keep God's holy days. They had to stop being homosexuals, stop being adulterers, stop being young people just living together all over making sex into a bunny rabbit game, which God hates, taking away the sanctity of marriage and what it's all about. Christ would say, stop it. And they wouldn't like that. They'd say, we'll stop you, buddy. And they would kill him if he came again just in the human flesh. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, and the margin says literally in the Hebrew, sicknesses. So Christ is our healer, and the Passover has to do with that too. That's what that broken bread is all about, and we don't want to play that down. That is part of the Passover. He took our sicknesses and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. He wasn't smitten by God, and God allowed it so that he could be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised in that horrible scourging for our iniquities. Our chastisement was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We are healed. And many thousands of people have been healed through the prayers. But we're in such a doubting generation today. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I know that many of you do not fully trust Christ for healing. I know that. I hope we can stir that up, pray about that. I hope we can get a revival of faith in this church. We need it, brethren. We really need it. We're ending into a time when even if you go to the doctor, he won't be able to help you. There'll be waves of people coming in from disease epidemics. The hospitals will be overwhelmed. There'll be reactions against the drugs. The drugs won't be effective anymore. A lot of doctors have admitted that. All kinds of things like that will happen. If there isn't a real God... Millions more would die if there is a real God and he allows his people to be healed and us even to heal some of the unbelieving to show God's power. That can happen. But it's up to us and our faith. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to his own way. The Lord was On the Lord was laid the iniquity of us all. Our iniquities, our sins were laid on Christ. He was oppressed, afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was the Lamb of God, and that's what he's pictured here in the Passover service. The red blood is pictured by the red wine that we take Passover evening. So Christ was slain in that way. 
It says in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. That's what Christ was to be. Isaiah talked about all these details about how he's to be beaten, how he was to be the healer, how our sins were paid for by him and by blood. He is an offering for sin. Isaiah said that 700 years ahead of time. He shall heal his days and prolong his days. And eventually, of course, Christ would live forever in the kingdom of God. It says in the last part of verse 12, because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin. Christ bore our sins. He bore the sin of many and made intercession. Even on the cross, he yelled out, Father, forgive them. They really don't understand. Forgive them. They know not what they do. And he does make intercession now as our high priest. As you know, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we have not a high priest who cannot understand our weaknesses, but was tempted in all points like as we are. He was at the poles of violence, the poles of hatred, the poles of jealousy and vanity and lust and greed. All these things he had just like anyone else. He had to fight it. He prayed with great tears swinging down like, like drops of blood. He prayed such earnestness. Cried out to God. He went all out. And brethren, if we love Christ, the Christ of the Bible, we had better learn to go all out and not be afraid to have a passion. Not a passion for sex, illicit sex. Not a passion to make more money. Not a passion to get drunk. But a passion for the Son of God and have deep feeling about that. Brethren, we don't have that feeling in the church today as much as we should. And way back when... And I'm not exaggerating before God, but I can tell you two or three different times, at least twice, once before the whole headquarters church, Mr. Herbert Armstrong got up and he said, Brethren, he said, I want you to know that I made a serious mistake in teaching along the line that I'm apologizing for it. And he said, I have had to go when dealing with the Protestantism and come out of Protestantism unwillingly I made us go to the opposite extreme and we talk about the law and keep the law, keep the law and the Sabbath and do this and do that. He said, that's all important. But we left out the profound feeling we ought to have about the blood of Jesus Christ. We have de-emphasized this, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Savior. Some of you brethren here know that just a few years ago we had people here and there in our midst and back in other cities in this nation who were making fun of us for going away from what Mr. Armstrong said because we, they said we were talking too much about Christ. Well, I'm glad to talk too much about Christ. And I hope that you will be glad to talk about Christ too. Don't be ashamed of that. When you read the book of Acts, and I don't have time to do that today, just start reading it. Talk about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, all the way through, continually. That was the main thing they talked about. Today we talk about prophecy more because that's the thing that's about to happen. But back then they'd just seen 500 brethren at once, all had relatives and friends all over. They said, He is risen. We saw Him, our, our aunt, our cousin, saw Him rising from the dead or saw Him after He was raised from the dead. It was exciting. They talked about Christ and what He had done. And we better get excited about that in the right way. The true Christ of the Bible, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he said, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Obey God. Do what God says. He taught that way of life. He does not change. 
But on the other hand, we don't just talk about the law. We must keep the law. Christ in us is the only way we can keep the law. Living his life within us through the Holy Spirit. That's why I love that one verse definition of Christianity. You know, Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Our old self has to die. Yet I live, I'm alive, yet not I. And it, right there, the Greek word is ego, yet not the ego, the ego, the self, the selfish self, the old human vanity. It's not the ego, I still live, yet not the ego, but Christ lives in me. But the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not just faith in, but faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The new King James, unfortunately, translates it in, but the old King James is more correct in this case, and I've looked that up, all our ministers have in the Greek. There's three places where it says the faith of Christ, not in Christ, but of Christ. Galatians 2.20, Galatians uh, 2.16, I think the other was back in Revelation 14.12. This is the patience of the saints, they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of the faith of Jesus Christ. He has to live his life within us because we love him, we appreciate forever what he did, and we want him to live his life in us. If that means cleaving to our own mate and not playing games, if that means keeping our lives clean but not getting drunk or using drugs, we want that. We don't regard that as a big problem. That's the way we want to live. We want to honor him who set us the example. We want to honor him who died for us. We want to honor him who's going to come back as king of kings and lord of lords. And when we sing that passage, you know, from the Messiah or the other similar passages from the uh, Elijah oratorio, we mean it. Many great beautiful choirs sing those songs, but they have no idea what they're singing. They don't get it. He's not their king because they do not do what he says. They're blinded. But most of you here and most of you brethren around the world in our churches, your mind is opened. You are being tested now. I'm being tested now. And I can still turn aside. And brethren, if I turn aside, I'm not going to have another chance. I'll just tell you that. God is giving me my chance now. I'm putting it like that because you can understand. You've got to decide. Do you understand or not? And if you do understand, you're held accountable. You're held accountable. And we've got to do what God says and let him live his life within us. Do I do it perfectly? No. But do I try with all my heart? Yes. And each of us has got to try to do it with our heart the best we can with Christ in us and God's help. That's the whole point, to really love and worship Christ as our living Savior, not just a dead Savior. But Christ's sacrifice was pictured here in detail way back in uh, Isaiah 52, and that had to be a blood sacrifice. I don't know if I gave you this scripture, but if you're writing notes, write down Leviticus 17:11. Leviticus 17:11. The life is in the blood. He gave his life because he shed his blood. And that's where your life is, your physical life, according to the Bible. Now let's turn to the New Testament, Matthew 26, if you would. Matthew chapter 26. And I want, you know, we've got plenty of time. Matthew 26, it says here in verse 17, 
Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, where do you want us to prepare for you the Passover? So they were getting ready to prepare the Passover. And it doesn't say day, it's in italics. So it's the first of it. It was right about the time the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to begin. It wasn't on the feast yet, or that would be too late. But he said, go on to a city, find this man, and you could keep the Passover at his home. Commentaries tell us that all over Jerusalem there were homes because it was a national festival, you know, that they observed. There were houses like that. They regularly had them ready ready to rent out. So Christ pointed that out. And he will let you keep the Passover at his house. So they went there and prepared the Passover. And when evening had come, he sat down with his twelve. And verse 26, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave the disciples. Notice, brethren, the bread comes first. Why does the bread come first always? Because that early morning of the Passover day, Christ was taken out and whipped in the early, cold, early morning hours. He was, he was uh, whipped with whips in a... In a uh, uh, anyway, I forget the name here that, that I always have used it all my life. But he had that kind of formal whipping by Roman lictor. And he went through that whipping. And that was the paying the penalty of our physical sins by his stripes that he had to go through. And so then uh, the blood comes first. And then they gave it to the disciples, said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, the Catholics think that that literally, by a miracle, is turned into the very body of Christ. And somehow, Christ comes God out of heaven, and that is his physical body. And yet, when the, the uh, Protestant Reformation began, why Martin Luther and a lot of his followers began to wonder about that, because in the old cathedrals in Europe, they were, had these big stones, and often the bread, some of the bread would get spilled and fall down between the stones, and the, rat, the rats were eating the bread. Were the rats chewing on God? <laughs> you see what I mean? They, they had to realize, no, that was not God literally, but that was a symbol. The bread is a symbol of Christ. This is my body. This represents my body. Obviously, he was a 33-year-old man sitting there in good health and saying, this is my body. So I don't think that any doubt what it meant, but we do today. People get it all mixed up. Then, after the cup, after the bread, he took the cup, and he gave thanks and gave it to them as God to bless that red wine as a symbol of his blood. Drink from it. For this is my blood, verse 28. So that blood symbolized his, his blood, that wine, of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Why? For the remission of sins. Your sins are forgiven if you take that ordinance that God has said to do and commanded it to be done forever by his people. If you're one of his people, you should be here unless you're terribly sick. And if you come, come with your whole heart. Pray. For between now and the Passover, it's probably good for most of us to fast. Try to fast at least one day unless you're in terrible health or something happens. Fast before God. Cry out to God, say, Father, clean me up, scrub me out, help me to get my attitude right, that I can come to the Passover with a clean heart. So it's for the remission of sins. For I say, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then it shows a little bit later here why Christ was out there in the Garden of Gethsemane and told his disciples to watch 
and so on. And then in verse uh, 36, uh, it says, Then Jesus called, brought them to a place called Gethsemane and said, Stay here and pray. Oh, I will go and pray over there. So Christ then went off on the other side of this garden where it was more private, and he took with him Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Just those three were his closest disciples, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. It's a kind of overwhelming fear and awe, because, brethren, Christ was still human. That's the thing, it's hard to understand, but he did have human flesh. He knew they were going to pull his arms like this, hang him on this tree or this big stake up there with his arms spread out. They were going to drive nails into his bones and his ankles and his wrists. It was going to hurt awful, awful. And he knew he could not sin. He couldn't cuss and get mad and say, I'll get you. He couldn't do anything like that. He just had to be the Lamb of God. He understood that. He knew in detail how his body and his tendons were going to be stretched, how it was going to hurt on that cross hanging there for six hours. He could hardly breathe. The various parts of his body were being stretched and tormented. He knew that in detail better than you and I could because he was the one that made the human body. He's the one that prophesied about this crucifixion that was going to take place. So he was, he was distressed. And he said, oh, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. So he went a little further away from even them all alone. And I've said before, and I hope you can understand it, at some point in your life, and many, many times, you will stand alone. You won't have the church around you. You won't even have your husband or wife or your buddies. You will stand alone. And God will in some way test you. And maybe, as he's done me through circumstances, many, many times, you have to decide. You have to decide. Is this it? If this is it, you've got to do what God says regardless. Regardless if you're fired, if regardless if you're going to be shot, regardless if you're going to be crucified, you've got to be willing to do it. Be a man. Be a woman. Be a Christian. Let Christ live in you. So he prayed, Oh, Father, if it is impossible, yet... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but as you will. So he cried out to God, Please help me do it, Father. Help me. And then he came back and found the disciples asleep. And he said, verse 41, Watch and pray. And I tell all of you this, brethren, Watch constantly. Watch world events. Watch prophecies. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is swelling, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. And I've come close many, many times to doing bad things. And I've had to cry out to God for help. Don't think you're better. We all have human nature. And in a moment of weakness, any one of us could commit adultery or murder or hate or do bad things. Don't ever think you're exempt. You're not exempt if you have human nature. You've got to recognize how weak we are. We all need God's help very much. And we all need Christ's sacrifice very much. That's why if you're walking with God, to a degree at least, we all hope we are, and if you walk more closely with God, you look forward to the Passover in a certain way to recommit yourself to your God, to your Savior, to Jesus Christ, and let them know once again, this is it. I'm giving my life to you. I'm not relying on my righteousness, though, Father, because I know I don't have any righteousness. My righteousness is as filthy rags before you. I know that. I've made mistakes, I've had bad attitudes, all kinds of things. But I'm relying on the blood of Jesus Christ to pay for my sins. 
And I beseech you, apply his sacrifice to me because I need it. And every one of you needs it. Understand that. Every one of us needs it. So he cried out to God. And he came then and did that the third time, speaking the same words. And then he said, the hours end. And then Judas came and, and, wit and witnessed against him, or betrayed him, and so on. But anyway, it was a very, very bad time. All this was done according to the scriptures, the prophets, that it might be fulfilled. It says down in verse 56, all these things, of course, were prophesied by God's word in the Old Testament, much of it hundreds of years before it came to pass. And now let's turn to, uh, let's see, uh, chapter 27, Matthew 27, and in verse 22, here was Pilate getting ready to turn him over, and the Jews were all crying out, Matthew 27, 22, he said, what will I do with Jesus? They all said, crucify him. Crucify him! Most of the slow, horrible deaths ever invented by man under the influence of Satan the devil. Then the governor said, why? What has he done? Other places showed that he knew that he had been turned over because of envy. And he, he knew that. It says back in verse 18, for he, Pilate, knew that because of envy they had delivered him. And it was a political, religious feud they were having. But he was under pressure the Roman government wanted him to maintain order. They didn't want a riot to occur and have to send oh, more armies into that place. So he tried to keep order and let them do it. Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather the tumult was arising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Here is a Roman governor calling him a just person. He talked to people on all sides. He could say it was a big hoax, a big religious argument. You see to it. But God still held Pilate guilty. He didn't, he didn't get off just because he washed his hands, but he tried to in that way. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And of course, some people try to blame that on the Jews. They were guilty. But brethren, God works it out where both parts of the human race, as God looked at it, were involved. The Gentiles were involved by the leading Gentile nation of the whole world, Pilate and the Roman government. They did it, and Pilate did not have to give in to that. He allowed the Son of God to be killed. And then the Jews were blinded, of course, but they allowed the same thing. So all of us through those representatives were guilty, and he paid for all our sins. His blood, they knew it was going to be awful. Then he released Pilate to them, Barabbas to them, and when they had scourged Jesus, that's the word I couldn't think of a minute ago. And I hope all of you understand at my age I forget words I never forgot in years past. Scourging, I've told, preached that so many times. But a formal whipping by the Romans, they had a Roman lictor. I understand we get our very word, you give your boy a licking. That comes from Roman lictor, a professional whipper who knew how to deal to take this big, big, uh, whip with a board, wooden edge, and then a scat of nine tails, and whoop! And it would wrap around the person, and they had metal cleats in it where he could jerk and tear the hide. It was a horrible way to be beaten. The blood was going to gush out. They had a Roman lictor do this, the form of scourging. Then they delivered him, all covered with blood, to be crucified. And then in chapter 30, verse 35, they crucified him, 
divided his garments, casting lots that it might be spoken. Uh, they divided my garments among them. All these things were prophesied way ahead of time. And God knew in advance, and Christ knew what he was going to have to go through. Verse 45, here was Christ, the Son of God, the one by whom God had created all things. So from the sixth hour, and the Romans counted time from six in the morning, so this was high noon, where it should have been very bright, from, three, from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, normally the hottest part of the day, until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. It was a very terrible time, and the very creation, in a sense, was convulsing, because the Creator was about to die. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he knew that because he prophesied it ahead of time. But on the other time, he felt that because when our sins were laid on him, as it says back in 2 Corinthians, he was made sin for us. I don't have time to go through all these scriptures in one sermon, but that does not make, mean, brethren, that say he was made to sin. He was made sin. He became the representative of sins when all our sins were placed on him. And if you are under sin and you have not repented, then you are what? You are cut off from God. And Christ felt a kind of emptiness and a sense of being cut off beyond what he had ever felt in his entire life. When our sins were placed on him, at that final moment, God took away any special help, any anything, and he felt that great helplessness and emptiness and guilt. My God, why have you forsaken me? Well, because of what I have done and you have done, that's why our sins were put on him. So we have to understand that. And then some said he's calling for Elijah and they tried to get him to drink some wine, which he did not. And then when he cried out, Again, and probably he cried out because of this thing, right? Notice just before verse 50, there's right at the end of verse 49, if you look in some of the other translations, and the number of experts, Greek experts, point out that some of the old manuscripts, it says right here at the end of verse 49, another took a spear and pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. That's when they pierced his side right then. He was beginning to cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And he was emotional. And maybe some young Roman soldier, obviously we don't know which one, God allowed it to go into his mind right then at the right time. It was not an Italian. I used to say that was an Italian. You know, the Romans were, had conscript soldiers. We don't know who it was. Some young unknown soldier said, Oh, shut up, and rammed the spear in his side. And out gushed blood and water. And frankly, in God's side, that was an act of mercy. He'd been suffering in agony for six hours. And right at three o'clock, the ninth hour, the hour, as many of you know, it was the traditional hour of sacrifice at three o'clock in the afternoon. They jammed this spear in his side and blood and water gushed out. And then it says right then, uh, he cried again, yielded up his spirit. His spirit went back to God, and his head flopped forward, and he began to look white. The blood was rumbling down the cross and filling, making a pool of blood at the water, at the bottom of that cross, and he was gone. And right then, as Christ, who had created all things for God the Father, when the Creator died, behold, the veil of the temple, showing how God was not directly available to the Israelites, 
to those people under the old covenant. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Great big power somehow ripped that great big tough thing into it. The, the thing so it was a big heavy woven rug. You couldn't even take an axe and hack it in two easily. It would be very hard to tear it in two. But God ripped it in two right over the hill in the temple there. From top to bottom. And what else happened? The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The creation shook because the creator was just dying. When the creator, whom God created all things through Jesus Christ, when he suddenly died, his creation convulsed. The creator died. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints had fallen asleep. Recent saints who obeyed God at that time were raised and coming out of the graves after the resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many some people have thought well that was Moses or Abraham no if Moses had gone into the city and said I'm Moses they said well I'm Pinocchio who are you they would have known Moses these were people of that time that some had known who they were from that city they were resurrected supernaturally so Christ was resurrected first but that they were resurrected so after that time the graves were opened Anyway, coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. So this was a tremendous witness to the people around when they heard that sound of Christ crying out, when they heard the noise and heard later from the, the guards and the Jewish leaders the temples was a great curtain was ripped into, and they literally felt the earth shake right then. God had died. God had died, that one of God who was the person of Jesus Christ. He was gone. He paid the penalty of our sins, which is death. So we have to think of all those things as this Passover approaches, brethren, and understand the meaning of it. One of the most meaningful things in all human history. We don't ever want to play it down. We want to only talk about prophecy or talk about some other little thing. Those are okay. But one of the magnificent things in all the Bible is that we have a Savior we have a Savior. His name is Jesus, the Son of God, and He paid for our sins. So let's appreciate that now and forever. Now I want to turn here, if we have time, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And here we have the story of Pentecost. I'll read just a little of it, but most of you know this. Peter was preaching and showing how Jesus was raised up in verse 32, of which were all witnesses. And he said in verse 20, 34, David did not ascend into heaven. No, God did not take anyone into heaven. No one's in heaven but Christ. But he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, Peter preached to all these thousands of Jews on the day of Pentecost, right after Christ's death. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified. You guys, right in this room. Boy, that must have been a piercing statement with all those Jews sitting around. They wanted to kill him too, both Lord and Christ. But because so many had seen what happened, they were sobered. And so when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, some of you sitting here have not been baptized and some of you sitting here know that you've never really repented. You're going your own way. You're self-willed. You have not surrendered to God. What do you do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
His shed blood paid for your sins. His shed blood paid for my sins. I'm no better. We've all sinned. We've got to understand that. What do we do about it? Do we want to die in the lake of fire? Or do we want to give our lives to God? We should give our lives to God. And I ask you, brethren, down in Perth and Johannesburg and all around the world, if we can get this tape to you in time, repent. Really have a sense of dedication that you have given your life to God. And if you haven't any fully repented, do so now. And take the Passover with a clean heart. Or later, go to God and repent. But sometime in your life, you better learn to do that and do it wholeheartedly. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission, the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. You can't do anything spiritually without God's Spirit. You've got to have it. And the only way to get it is to go after it with all your heart. Repent and give your life to God and really mean it. And have a time of fasting and self-examination, as the Bible tells you to do before the Passover. And rededicate your heart and your mind to Jesus Christ before this Passover. So that's a very important thing. Now, uh, let's turn to Second to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 now. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And here Paul is describing what Christ revealed to him about the Passover. Some people get mixed up as to how to take it. This makes it very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. For I received, Paul writes under inspiration, from the Lord, from God Almighty, that which I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which is betrayed took bread. When did he institute the Passover? When? On the night in which he was betrayed. There are always arguments about this and that happening. But if you look carefully, Christ was crucified before the Jews took their Passover. Their Passover day began the next night. This was the night before that. This was the night before they took it. The night beginning the 14th. Not the night beginning the 15th. No way. The night in which he was delivered up. Then he took the Passover and the Lord Jesus on that same night took bread and yet said, Take, eat, this is my bread broken for you for the remission of sins. And afterwards he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you take it. Don't take it whenever you want to. As often as you do take it. When the season comes around, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It's a memorial service. A memorial service. And you're calling attention to this great event when you take the Passover. Verse 28. But let a man examine himself. We ministers don't need to go around. You don't have to confess your sins to us. But you do examine yourself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that wine. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So many don't have faith that they can be healed. <coughs> For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Obviously, <coughs> excuse me, have died prematurely. If I die or some of us die up in our 80s or 90s, that's not unusual. So don't, don't give up about that. We're talking about younger people who could be healed or should be healed. Let's turn now to Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> Philippians chapter 2, brethren.
Again, one of the most meaningful parts of the Bible when you understand it. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. There have been people among us, even in the last year or two, there used to be many people among us out in Pasadena when Mr. Armstrong was there. Well, that old Mr. Armstrong, this and that and so on. I heard it over and over again. I don't want to dwell on that, but they were very human. They had more splits than we have, frankly. But we have people like that. We're to learn to be of one accord. We're to recognize we're all sinners. We're all forgiven. We love one another. We forgive one another. We go on together. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, trying to climb over the other guy, trying to get ahead by elbowing someone else out of the way, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Realize this other guy may be closer to God than you are. We don't know that. You don't know what he's going through, and I don't know. So he may, with the temptations he has and the problems he has, be better than you. Let each of you look out only, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So look out for the interests of others, not just yourself. Have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being formed in the form of God, he was like God, he was with God from eternity. He had glory and power and majesty, surrounded by the 24 living creatures, the 24 elders, the sea of glass, all kinds of magnificent glory. He was the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He gave that up. He did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but in spite of that, he made himself of no reputation. And as the commentaries and experts all know, this expression means literally, he emptied himself. He who had been God with total God power and glory and majesty said, I give it up. He came down to be a normal human being who was then spat upon and kicked and beaten and cursed and crucified because God loves you and God wants you and me to be part of his family. He wants to share eternity with us. He just wants us to get fully on his team and not play games and not dance out on the edge of the cliff all the time. He wants us to give our lives to him and let him know we really mean it. We want it with all of our heart. So we're to understand that. He emptied himself and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, one of the most horrible deaths that had ever been invented. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those things in heaven, those on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God wants that. He wants you to honor him. He wants you to honor his Son equally. So worship Christ. Worship God. Be thankful with all your heart that Christ came into this human flesh. If you have a hero, why don't let it be some rock star. Don't let it be some big moxer who knocks someone else in the head. Don't let it be some politician who tells the biggest lies so he can get elected. Let your star be Jesus Christ. Worship him. Seek him. Ask him to live his life within you and have the mind of Christ. And profoundly appreciate the Passover and what it means.